Oh my god, Jacob Rees Mogg. Do you see him on Question Time? Uh, I he, saw he was on highlights. Fire. You know how everyone today thinks if you're upper class, you must be dumb. Yeah, like you're some slobbering dofan. What do you think with uh, Rees Mogg? Do you think he's that kind of? No, he's really upper class idiot, or does he actually he's know not something? An idiot. His arguments, his fantastic argument. But Rees Mogg is is great. I don't think he'll ever be prime minister because he probably doesn't want to. He's be. the favourite right now. If he's as dumb yeah. as the people who think all upper class people are dumb, yeah. think he is. Yeah. He'll take it. He'll go for it. Yeah. And but he, if he's smart, he knows, listen, with everything that's going on right now, who the fuck wants to be Tory leader? Give it four or five years. With him, you know, he's not in it for the money. He's a bit yeah, he's like, already uber he's, rich. He's a bit like Trump, you know, he's just in it for the fun. Just in those CNN fake news. I remember when CNN first came out, it was really exciting. And whenever I had a chance to watch satellite TV... We called it then, you know. We'd always, Live we'd always, put, yeah. It was amazing. I love the way they're being quite. Oh fuck! The but most interesting thing I saw. Oh, the gif. No, no, yeah, Trump's yeah, gif yeah, of him clotheslining about, yeah, yeah, yeah. CNN sign on his face. CNN is ISIS. Well, it's the Clinton News Network. And oh, then, and um, Putin brought it up. What fake news? When Putin and Trump met, when they were in front of all the press, Putin pointed at the press, said to Trump, "Are these the guys who are hurting you, or something? <laughs> are these guys who are hurting you?" And Trump was like, yeah, you're right about that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Tom, Dick and Not Hyman show. I'm joined once again by Tim. Hello, everybody. And we're going to be giving our review of Spider-Man Homecoming. We'll also be talking somewhat awkwardly about the latest 21st century sexuality, the rise of the pornosexual. But kicking us off, we ask the question, is CNN fake news? Yes. Segment two. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I don't answer that thing. Since you're attacking us, can you give us a question? Go since ahead. you're no, Mr. President-elect, go ahead. Mr. President-elect, go ahead. since you are attacking no, our news not organization, you. Not can you. you give us a chance? Your organization. You are attacking our news organization. Your organization. Can you give us a chance Let's to ask go. a question, sir? Go ahead, sir. Can Quiet. you state, can, Mr. President-elect? Go ahead. Can you state categorically, question. Mr. President-elect, can you give us a question? Don't be rude. Attacking us. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. No, I'm not going to give you a question. I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You sta- can you state categorically? You are fake news. Sir, Go ahead. can you state categorically that nobody... No, Mr. President-elect, that's not Go appropriate. Ahead. It's not appropriate, but it was true. I mean, that was uh, from last year, where CNN's Jim Acosta was trying to ask Donald Trump a question, and Trump said, no, you're fake news. And I think that's when fake news, that's when it entered our general lexicon, everyday lexicon. Yeah, but who who started it? Was it Trump or was it Hillary? It was Mark Zuckerberg, I believe, if I remember correctly. The actual terms of fake news. But I think people have been accusing each other of counter-propaganda and oh, general yeah, bullshit yeah, yeah. for a long time. But but now it's, it's, it's seeped into the public vernacular. Well, when Mark Zuckerberg coined a phrase, I believe he coined a phrase, maybe he didn't, but he's the person I remember first using it. He was basically making excuses for Hillary Clinton, why Hillary Clinton lost why brexit happened i believe that was blamed on fake news as well some 14 mm-hmm. year old macedonian in his basement <laughs> when trump accused cnn of being fake news he simultaneously took attention away from facebook pages and 14 year olds in their basements and focused it on any mainstream media outlet that would provide any kind of unfavorable coverage to donald trump so basically the majority of mainstream media everyone except fox news pretty much and info was the yeah. bright part yeah they're his preferred. <laughs> you know what I mean? We live in bizarre world, people. But uh, yeah, 
At the same time, he tapped into the ever-present paranoid American psyche of the media aligning to us, the government aligning to us. He tapped directly into that. I think that's kind of what resonated with you, Tim, quite oh, a lot. Well, definitely. And not just with me, I think with a lot, lot of people, because many people have been saying it for a long, long time. And especially... The if, NSA are spying and, on and you. No, just going more back to the, the media, like the way that we've... Everyone has seen the way that these two wars in Iraq were waged and how the media and CNN in particular were very implicit on getting the public on board for those wars. Very positive coverage. Of you the know. second one as well from CNN? Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't like negative coverage, was it? I remember uh, yeah, it was pretty blanket across the board, the whole um support the troop thing. Exactly. Yeah. But you, I think you're referring to a documentary, early nineties documentary. What was it called again? Where the guy took all these di- direct satellite feed image. Was it called manufactured or something like that? Manufactured? Well, I'm thinking more of the Al Pacino film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, what's this one? Dog Eat Dog, is it called? Wag the Dog. Completely off topic. But do you remember CNN in the early 90s, the first Gulf War? Yeah. They faked footage. Yes. They pretended they were like on the rooftop of some hotel in Baghdad and yes. they weren't. They were just at CNN headquarters. Getting ready for an imminent chemical attack. Yeah, like ducking like as though there were bullets going over their head. Yeah, and they, they were on the, the roof of their car park in in dallas or something with a with a blue screen they had like um fake cacti bushes and things around and it, it, that's not the only time that there's been other there's been other instances of this other incidences where they've um dubbed on sound of gunfire to reports over the hillary footage as she was getting off the plane in bosnia i don't know about that one shaking but, people's hand like but um no they've, they've done all sorts of things like that most recently cnn controversy wise cnn has been heavily pushing this trump russia connection which thus far doesn't really seem to be much there it seems to be like six degrees of separation trump knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy in russia what do you make of the trump russia connection so far i think convinced definitely i think every every country of of note has tried to influence other country of notes elections for hundreds of years especially america especially america obama did it still does it he came over here telling us to to to, to remain and that that's that's a very blatant obvious way of uh interfering with the democratic process of yeah, another country clandestine but, in any yeah, way but to, to say that vladimir putin had a crack team of people creating memes and that is what brought down hillary's campaign that that's just a step too far for me it's like why are you why are people taking the trolls seriously when they talk about the great meme wars i'll tell you why a picture tells a thousand words image macros tell a thousand words and we you know the the internet is is fast become a visual medium and uh culture yeah and can sort of cram a thousand word essay into a single panel picture or cartoon of a, a frog doing something i think you can make people laugh i think a lot of some of the internet trolls are genuinely funny witty people yeah it's just and where is the line drawn well but that's why it's so dangerous you see these that's why these memes are so dangerous to the the sort of ruling elite because if people start laughing at them you know they lose all their their power they people lose the fear people have over them and they can laugh at things don't they getting back to cnn and trump and russia do you think that trump no, is putin's manicurian less, candidate less, that's what we're getting at it's, it's not so fa- it's not so much the issue at hand which is russia trying to influence the outcome of another country's election but the issue at hand is so-called independent news organization trying to affect my view of that 
it was something that was deliberate and planned and conniving and I should fear it and be angry about it. And that is what CNN was trying to do trying to paint the Russians as some sort of overarching evil force. Yeah, the difference between were they mistaken versus they know, they willfully are misleading the public. Willfully, definitely willfully misleading the public, just like they were on that rooftop <laughs> in the car park. Yeah. And- CNN's descent from news organization to political campaign is nearly complete. Last week, the channel published a story linking Trump ally Anthony Scaramucci to a Russia-controlled investment fund they said was being investigated by the Senate And yet on Friday, CNN had to apologize to Scaramucci, which they did. They retracted the story completely and admitted it did not meet CNN's editorial standards. And that's saying something. Three CNN employees have been fired in the last couple of weeks for a story trying to connect someone who's connected to Trump with an investment bank in Russia. And it turned out this story was only supported by one anonymous source. And the general rule of thumb in journalism is two, at least two sources before you publish anything. And so the upper management at CNN just decided to throw them under the bus as a little bit of a scapegoat to try and take some of the heat off. Yeah, they got rid of... Makes them look good. I mean, I think they did admit culpability by saying we didn't follow the right protocols. You, You know a bit about... TV and, you know, schedule and advertising bit. and stuff. What what sort of cycles do, like, advertisers work on? Because I'd be interested to see if this has a negative Monthly. impact. Like, yeah, in, a, in, like, two or three weeks from now, if, like, half of CNN's advertisers suddenly pull their slots. There's, on one hand, you've got the people who go along with what Trump says. He's a ratings winner, for sure. Yeah. And CNN know it. Yeah. That's why whenever there's a major story that doesn't involve Trump... Yeah. CNN provide minor amount of coverage to it versus whatever minor thing is going on with Trump. Like, that's the lead story. Yeah, so I suppose there's that. He does generate the viewers. To answer your question about what do advertisers follow? Eyeballs, number of eyeballs. So, but to my knowledge, CNN's ratings, long-term trend is downwards. However, they've had an upward spike post-Trump. Yeah, yeah. Probably all news has, to be honest. And uh, demographics are becoming more and more important as well. And I would say CNN's demographics are most likely going to be ABC One's middle class, got a university degree, you know what I mean, bachelor's degree, whatever, yeah. highly sought after. They've got disposable income. They've got money to burn. But what? maybe I'm jumping ahead of myself and us too much here, but there was that story about Trump posting that, retweeting that meme of... The animated gif. Yeah, of, him um, smashing the shit out of a CNN-headed Vince McMahon yeah, it's a WrestleMania. From WrestleMania 19 or something. He yeah. runs along and clotheslines him. Yeah. And it's like CNN's f- yeah. over the faces. Yeah. Over the faces yeah. of CNN logo. Yeah. And, and initially, it was spun in a way that maybe some people could see some pity for CNN in that. But then that very quickly changed a few it's days funny. later when CNN allegedly went after the young guy who made up the GIF in the first place. And what I've heard that was made up that, that it was, was a 15 up. year old kid but someone made it but did they go up but whatever they did it there was a, there was a bit of a public backlash against they CNN. threatened yeah which they threatened the gift maker and saying um listen if you do any more anti cnn stuff we're going to expose your real name to the world and your employer is going to fire yeah. you mate. like it's the implicit implied in the yeah. threat is that you're going to lose your job yeah your but, friends and family are going to they're going to lose respect for you because you're an internet troll but that action backfired massively on cnn it's like People who were even neutral before, they're probably like, oh, what a shitty organisation to, to act like that. 
And the right have started employing um, the left tactic of going after advertisers, boycotting advertisers. Yeah, that's what, let's see. Let's see maybe two, three weeks from now, CNN have a big drop in advertisers. I don't know. Everyone's sort of political now, though, aren't they? It's great. You, but, can't, you, can't, you can't open your mouth on the bus for, for fear of inciting a, a riot of one sort or another. It's incredible times we live in. Going back to the CNN story where they fired a writer and two editors, they did obviously retract the story. Now, does that suggest that CNN are fake news. The fact that they put out this story, they didn't follow the proper protocols, but they did eventually apologise for it. They're fake news as long as they maintain the fakery of being... Impartial? Impartial, yes. Neutral. Neutral. They are obviously not I know. So if they just present themselves in a a less neutral way, then they're not fake anymore. I think their stance is, um, listen, everyone makes mistakes. We're going to make mistakes, you know? But what bugs me is that a lot of time, like some people, uh, some people, a lot of people get their news from Twitter and Twitter's all about the retweets Yeah, when like a breaking news story happens. And like a lot of times CNN will put something out there and it will get thousands and thousands of retweets. And then it turns out it's not true. And CNN will put out a retraction and they'll tweet out, oh, by the way, update, we got this wrong. But that tweet, the correction tweet has like maybe 10, (laughs) do you know what I mean? Like maybe nobody knows about it or no one who gets their news from Twitter knows about it. But CNN are 100% against Donald Trump. They do not want him to succeed because I guess they're against his ideology, if you can say Trump has one. Sort of changes every other day. Well, you, no, they are, they are against his ideology because maybe I'm getting a bit Alex Jones here, but people have called CNN, instead of the cable news network, they've called it the Clinton News Network. And um, they've said it's sort of a fundamental cog in the whole machinery of the, the globalist the Clinton machine. O- over, overmind. You say that, but they're losing, well, they were losing viewers. It's spiked back up again. It's peaked up again. T- peaked up again. TV in general isn't as, doesn't have this huge power over us that it used to, you know, because it is like Netflix and stuff now. It's not like everyone gathers around the box at the same time in the same room. Um, so it's, it's, it's never going to be as powerful as it used to be. Talking about CNN pushing the Trump-Russia connection narrative, James O'Keefe of the Veritas Project has reared his quite ugly head again. I mean, the thing about James O'Keefe videos is everyone says, oh, yeah, 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 but they're edited. Okay, well, let's start where it starts. Every every single video is edited. This podcast is edited for, like, timekeeping, so, you know, cutting out all the dross. And that's what James O'Keefe does, obviously. He cuts out all the bits that aren't relevant. Yeah. But, but the thing is, when you say something's been taken out of context, you have to give the correct context. Otherwise, it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. But what, so what was the main thing that James O'Keefe has been going after? He's got a couple of, um, he's got like a What's couple he- of CNN producers, not really amazingly high up ones, to be honest. But he did also get a semi high profile CNN presenter, Van Jones. Uh-huh. The guy who said um, the Trump vote was a white lash. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He's That's got him word. on tape. It makes it look like he's exposed the fact that CNN is making up this Russia-Trump connection bullshit. Or at least just painting it in the most overly dramatic, irrealistic way. Yeah. You know. Highly sensationalist. What, what, what do you think is going to happen this week? I mean, with the whole Russia thing. Well, the Russia thing is just a big nothing burger. Really? You don't think that... Uh... There's nothing there you can do. No. Get so you heard Van Jones there say, oh, the whole Russia thing, that's a big nothing burger, which is uh, an American expression, which means there's nothing to it. 
Yeah, you know, but it's so it's an, it's an accepted thing that happens in politics that they've just hyped up to a huge degree to turn it into more like a potential act of war. Like you had Hillary Clinton in the later days of the campaign when she was really panicking. She was saying how like these cyber attacks by Russia were acts of war. Say what you like about Trump. He might be a nutter or whatever, but I actually feel safer with him in terms of global safety. I feel safer with him than, than, than Clinton. I mean, it also came out last year, CNN leaked the uh, the question to Hillary Clinton before the debate. Yes, yes. Not but, a lot was made of that but, but just in the mainstream ima- press. Imagine how, how, how we'd feel if we lived in some terrible alternate reality where Hillary Clinton had won the um, presidential election and we'd gone to war with Russia. Well, already. Over some report that cnn had found of putin was the creator of peppy the frog and (laughs) you know cnn had the tape of him drawing it and they played it and we went to war on that tape did you see uh, talking about putin and trolling at the g20 thing he was wearing a donald trump tie (laughs) was he what a a trump brand tie? yeah that's not trolling that's like a really nice thing to do that's what a compliment (laughs) to pay someone do you know, what? I haven't fact checked this. I could be fake news right here, but I've seen a photo where the tie blows up over Putin's shoulder. Right, and you, if you zoom in, <laughs> it's the diamond Donald okay. Trump tie logo. But do you know something, Trump? You know, as an icebreaker, Putin could just be standing there as an icebreaker. Be like, oh, if you notice, I've got one hey, of your ties on. Hey, look you at know? Me, hey. that. That is international. Recognize this? That is international diplomacy. Like Justin Trudeau and the socks. Did that's you see not, the rainbow socks? The, that's the not, Islamic rainbow socks. That's not international diplomacy. That's international. You have to beat me. Something else. Trudeau, don't don't wear socks like that. I think he's a bimbo. I would actually call him a bimbo. He's like a pretty airhead. He, he, but let's not go off topic. Okay. Go back we have to a lot CNN. Yeah. CNN would obviously during the election they're massively pro Hillary. But this raises the question. You talked earlier about CNN presenting themselves as though they were neutral and impartial. Is it okay to begin with to not be impartial as a news media outlet? Well, you see, Tom, there's, there's a very important difference and distinction between having bias, political bias, and moral bias. Now, you see, CNN, their support of Hillary, they were probably trying to present that as a humanitarian thing. Yeah. Where it's like, if you are generally a humanitarian, caring person, you should like us and vote for Hillary Clinton. And if you think opposite, then you're obviously the opposite of humanitarian. That is a moral bias. That is not what news is about, telling us how to feel. I disagree. Do you remember the old, the news reels, the black and white Pathé yeah, news reels? Yeah, yeah. Where it was just, it was contextless. It was just uh, something happened here today, and then somewhere else this happened, and then yeah. a dam broke here, something happened here today, something happened there yesterday, and it's like you weren't told... This is why this matters. This is why this is important. Whereas news evolved and progressed to contextualizing what's actually going on. Editorializing, I believe is the word, right? But the other, where did it change? I would say with newspapers. Almost each and every newspaper, traditionally, is started up by one, maybe a handful of people, normally quite rich people, who have an agenda and they want the public to start thinking about certain issues a certain way. So they start a newspaper or a magazine, do you know what I mean? Like maybe we've seen like in the 60s, um, market research got a lot more sophisticated and maybe they found out that people actually like their news to be more emotive. The Independent, which is now defunct as a newspaper, still online, but they were started. They started up in 1986 
And their entire ethos was, we're going to be completely balanced. So on one page, you're going to get like the left wing opinion on this story. On the next page, you're going to get the right wing slant on it. They went out of business. Because they obviously, I mean, it's the public are at fault here. The public will say, yeah, we want impartial, completely neutral news. But in reality, they don't. They want the kind of news they want to hear. But I'm totally okay with newspapers include, and even TV news outlets like CNN and ITN, BBC News. Having an agenda, having a bias and opinion, so long as they're upfront about it. In the way that most newspapers traditionally are upfront. Everyone knows the Telegraph is pro-Tory. Everyone knows The Guardian is a left-wing newspaper. You know what I mean? It's mm. When everyone knows up front, it doesn't have a damaging effect. Yeah. And then they'll never be accused of being fake news. Yeah. You know? It's like people all like garden readers will call The Sun and The Sun readers like fucking Neanderthal, idiot, stupid, brainless, xenophobe, racist. But they'll never call them liars. Sun maybe readers, Kelvin McKenzie. Or maybe, maybe Kelvin McKenzie. But they won't call them fakers and liars. It's nas- just wrong. Yeah, but you see, but that's because both the Sun and the Guardian, like you say, they they've set their stall out. Different ideologies. Yeah, they they they're not they're not pretending to be like you know the font of truth and knowledge like CNN used to. Maybe they'll change their way now. You said earlier you remember when um, CNN launched. That means that would suggest you would remember when Fox News started because they came after CNN. Right. Obviously, CNN was the first twenty-four hour news channel. Do you recall though? Fox News was launched. The idea was all all the news, TV broadcast news outlets, they're all liberal. They all lean to the left. Yeah. And there's no balance. So Fox News is going to be a pro-Republican party, pro-conservative news channel. And the idea is our existence will balance out the overall TV news market. They were upfront about that in the early days. And it was later on, I think about four or five years down the road, they started doing Fox News, fair and balanced. When everyone already knew, yeah. it's not fair and balanced. It's the propaganda wing of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Do you recall anything like that? Well, no, I never really watched much Fox, to be honest, ever. Speaking about impartiality and neutrality, the BBC. Now, of course, BBC is publicly funded. Everyone in Britain who owns a TV pays a licence fee that funds the BBC. Now, they part of their remit, their royal charter or what have you, is uh, they they can't show any partiality to any political party or special interest group or what have you. Right. But it's a bit of a grey area. I think, like, BBC journalists can be biased, but... They have to make it clear that they're not speaking for the BBC as a whole, as an organisation. They're not the spokesman for it. Do you know what I mean? I just, but it's just, it's just sort of slightly the way I see the, how the BBC operates and how the BBC thinks about itself. It goes back to what I was saying before. Oh, the establishment. It just goes back to what I was saying before about how there has to be a distinction between uh, like a political bias, do, right, and moral bias. And the BBC sees itself as auntie in a way and it it feels like it has to do things out of our best interests whether we disagree with it or not they know best and so the way they present the news and what how we should feel about things and things we should support it's it's like it's bollocks man 
They, they, were, they have a bias from think, which is a, a left wing. You say that, but they were obviously anti-Corbyn from day one. Laura Kunzberg, I remember the reason why Corbynistas hate her so much. The first sit-down interview Corbyn did with her, she was showing like utter disdain towards him. Yeah, but the BBC is is an anomaly. It is a really weird thing. Like I was watching the breakfast news. Yeah, it's yesterday. pretty unique. I yeah. was watching the breakfast news yesterday morning, and the woman who was presenting the weather, she only had one arm. And, and <laughs> okay. her, her, her stump, she had a half an arm left at the elbow and her stump was just waving in the wind. And like, you wouldn't see was that. It below the elbow? Yeah, just slightly below the elbow. You wouldn't see that on any other TV station, Somewhere in Europe, somewhere in Europe, they had someone with Down syndrome present a new segment. And what, I was like, oh, what, this, is, this is where it's as, going. As a one-off it? or just... As a one-off, yeah. No, yeah, no, yeah. this is like just regular. She's a regular presenter. And I thought, it's, it's cool. But you'd never but see like any other... this is where it's going, other... though. Equal opportunities hiring, giving someone who's got like a severe speech impediment and making them present the news. Oh, my, no, you couldn't You couldn't have Tourette's. That's too much. And you wouldn't get that on paid-for television, you know, would you? You can imagine some advertising. I don't want someone with one arm telling me the weather. I'm not paying them money. We're going off track. But this is, yeah, like this is why I like the BBC. They make programs specifically for small niche audiences that a commercial channel would be well look there's no money in that we're going to make a we're not going to make a program for that audience it's yeah, too yeah, small yeah yeah yeah. can i also add to, to the mix along mm-hmm. with the bbc a lot of people forget that channel four is actually publicly funded as well and you've john got snow. john snow saying like fuck, fuck the tories <laughs> allegedly he allegedly probably off his he face denies it. ketamine at glastonbury or something when he said it but he's been throwing caution to the wind in terms of bias for a couple of years now with his twitter account for sure really so i'm talking about bbc they have to as an organization present themselves as impartial but there's a little bit of leeway with bbc journalists however when it comes to programs like the actual 10 o'clock news anything that's on bbc news as the yeah they have to be completely impartial and neutral they uh well and the way you get around this is you invite guests on yes to give the opinions and the counterpoints mm. and what have you and that's what the bbc does to a large extent yeah and um but it's it's almost impossible to give 50 50 all the time plus it's like it's not really even in your best interest to do that not not in the format of television news I'd say the only format where they are able to pull it off is like some like radio, like LBC, um, where it's literally from one presenter to the other, it goes left, right, left, right, left, right. Is it? Yeah, pretty much. So you've got like six presenters, and then in the evening, everyone's just like drunk who rings in, so it doesn't really matter. But radio tends to lean right. TV mm. is mostly liberal, egalitarian, and then radio, you've got more of a like conservative presence. Maybe that's because the public is more involved with it directly. But say like a program like um, take Andrew Neil on this week. Oh yeah, great. Obviously, he's got leeway to add his own personal bias to things because it's technically not a hard news program. It's opinion and yeah. editorial. I, I, I can never quite work out Andrew Neil's bias. I think he just hates politicians and people in general. <laughs> he just like has a go at everyone. He, he goes extra hard only on Scottish MPs. <laughs> when it comes to like fellow Scotsmen, it's like he has a yeah. higher bar, like a higher expectation of them. Yeah. Where he's like, listen, you're Scottish. You're like the home of Burke. You gotta. I'm holding you to a higher standard than I do these southern yobs. Yeah, yeah. No, he's good. He's good, Andrew Neil. At this stage in the proceedings, we'd like to offer our warmest congratulations to Paul Nuttall MP on his victory in the Stoke and Trent by-election. I appreciate the more sentient among you will realise that the results aren't in yet and that this is just another example of fake news. But face facts. UKIP's leader has a Hillsborough Hero Medal, a PhD from Harvard 
and was Man U's star striker for a decade. <laughs> Such a renaissance man was always going to be a shoe-in in Stoke. It follows that we must send our sincere commiserations, or even commiserations, to Labour candidate Gareth Snell. We've been spoiled with his wisdom and insights during the campaign, especially about women, or as he calls them, squabbling sour-faced ladies. Clearly, this is the man who taught Donald Trump everything he knows about Twitter. Meanwhile, with their enemies in chaos all around them, Mrs. May's Tories grow smugger than Jack Smug McSmug, the year he won the Smuggest Person of the Year competition. But when they're not smugging it up, do they ever wonder what their leader really stands for? I like, I like the way he uses intonation. Like, he just raises his voice. Like, even though I'm being very polite, you're just speaking complete bullshit. <laughs> I can't believe what you're saying. And, um, he always knows his numbers. Yeah, yeah. He, he's rarely ever caught off guard when it comes to numbers. Yeah. So he's, he's a BBC guy, you'd say. But even though it's made by a production company, isn't it, this week? It's, it's not like... Andrew Neil strikes me as very much his own man. Mm. Like, if someone did come to him, if a producer did come to him and say, like, yeah, listen, this is the line you're taking on this, he'd probably tell him to go fuck himself. Yeah. He's got clout. Yeah. Earlier in the year, the Financial Times reported that public trust in the mainstream media is at an all-time low, sub 50% for the first time and of course, these these figures make the media panic because they feel like they're losing relevance and jobs, losing influence, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. Or maybe they, you know, there is the genuine concern. Okay, maybe everyone will start believing fake news, but I don't think that's happened. It's still the case that everyone has their favourite mainstream outlet, even though, like, even those people who say, like, "Oh, I don't trust anything in the mainstream news." There's still certain websites and news channels or certain individual journalists. That mm-hmm. they will trust who will be mainstream journalists. Trevor McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a man I would trust with my life. Or like we say, aforementioned Andrew Neil or yeah. uh, what's her name, Laura Kunzberg. Yeah, exactly. It's become more like a popularity contest rather than, mm. oh, I watch this because this is the most trusted news. It's more, I like this person's personality yeah. more than anything yeah. else. And it's generally the people you like most are the most truthful ones or the and, and and being truthful you could be biased but still be truthful and that's an interesting thing you talk Whoa. about being truthful and fake as long as you're as long as you're being truthful it doesn't matter if you're coming from the left or the right as long as you're getting to the heart of the matter you can be not bullshitting you can sincerely believe something for good arguably good reasons and still be wrong yeah if you allow for that sort of nuance but i think more and more these days we don't really allow for that. If someone, if a news presenter gets something wrong, it's because they're a lying sack of shit. <laughs> yeah, with because an evil they, agenda. Exactly, yeah. Reptilian. Pause, rewind, look at Hugh Edwards' eyes. They definitely flickered. When did George Soros get you? you know? <laughs> like I say, it's massive distrust at the moment. And I think um, the public are starting to look at certain mainstream news journalists as part of an elite establishment yeah, yeah, that's... Yeah detached but, from but, real people but let's let's be careful now let's let's not fall maybe this word distrust of the media that's that's one of these sort of fake terms they're trying to ferment to make people feel like distrust is is more like judging someone's ability to, to make be honest to make judgments what what people believe or don't believe how clever or stupid they are are you talking about curating news letting you know certain things and keeping certain things hidden away yeah every news outlet is going to prioritize certain stories over other ones so i mean again you got a little you got to allow a little bit of leeway there for an, an editor to decide actually listen this story is the most important so we're leading with that 
No, what I was saying, it's not so much about people people being more distrustful. Maybe people aren't being more distrustful or being more cynical. Maybe it's just the public are growing up. Maybe there's more discernment happening. More sophisticated. Yeah, people don't just take it as the gospel truth because she yeah. would have said it. I think that's a really good thing. Obviously, to the media, that terrifies them. They'll try and paint that. In, in words like distrust and fear. and I don't think it's a rise in scepticism, though. No, I don't I... think people are thinking more sceptically. No, I think, I think it... they're sophisticated enough to know, listen, there's certain things this news outlet is going to let me know and certain yeah. things they're going to keep from yeah. me. I think it's a minor enlightenment, Tom. Like going back to what you were saying about the Pathé newsreels. The old the, 40s. Yeah. The reason they didn't really have an opinion or give an opinion was because, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe everyone had the same fucking opinion then. People used to accept the news as truth, but maybe it's like a little bit of an enlightenment now. People have got through the cynicism and it's turned into a more discernment now. Are you concerned at all with the idea that the public now are looking towards random bloggers and YouTubers to get their news? I think that's great. You know, if there's if something's happening, it's great that like a hundred people can pull out their phones and film it and put it online. You'll see what actually happened. As Problem opposed is, to just one camera that gets edited by someone. But that goes back to what we were saying about those Pafé newsreel. Mm. It's, uh, there's no context to it. No. I call them aftermath videos because um, you don't see what led up to it. You just see the aftermath. Yeah. So it's like you're missing half the story. I'm a little bit concerned about... These bloggers. And YouTubers being viewed as legit news sources. Because what, what are their resources? Do these people really know how to do research? Because I'm, I'm of the opinion that you can't do research through the internet alone. No. You've got to go off and find the news clippings and going down to the library. And first-hand, there's always first-hand and second-hand evidence. Reading official documents signed, yeah. do you know what I mean? That's, you can yeah. prove it. Going somewhere yourself to find out about something. Talking to yeah. someone from that place. Your average blogger, YouTuber, they don't, they don't do that for the most part. No. They take... The reportings from, I was going to say legit news sources, but more mainstream news sources, more known news sources. And then they just interpret it however they want to interpret it. It's like Chinese whispers. But then who's to say that just because you've got a multinational corporation like CNN with a lot of resources and money that they don't do terrible research or none? Well, they did, didn't they, CNN? Yeah. A couple of weeks ago. I'd still, if you had to put your money where your mouth was, I would side with the organization that's got reporters across the world that's got the phone numbers of high up important people yeah but then of course i'm of the perspective that because they've got those numbers of high up people they shouldn't be trusted Correct. so like like you said where does it leave us it leaves us in a world where we don't trust any anything exactly but we shouldn't see that as a negative thing of being mistrustful or suspicious we should just try and see that more as being discerning and calm and not jump into conclusions and thinking things through for yourself and researching them for yourself as well. But my fear is, like, take, um, there's one that's emerging now on YouTube, the Rebel Media. Oh, yeah. And they've got people like uh, Tommy Robinson. Gavin McKinnis. Is Gavin McKinnis, yeah. Uh, what's her name? Lauren. Southern. Yeah. But they're not real journalists or reporters. Mm. They just, they take what the mainstream does and then they poke holes in it. And they try and pick it apart. Yeah. And that's like, oh, I'm legitimate because I'm attacking these illegitimate mainstream news outlets. It's a little bit disingenuous, do you know what I mean? And they're a little bit controversialist as well. Like, instead of being like a reporter... Confrontational. Instead of being like a reporter, they're more like the loudmouth in the bar who'll say the controversial thing, which might be true, but it's a bit embarrassing to say. You know, so they, they, they do a lot of that sort of thing. One thing I will say I quite like them, it, actually. 
<laughs> they are at the very least, as I said earlier, they're mostly upfront that they're a conservative, right-leaning outlet. So it's like at least they're a kind of they're not trying to pull the wall completely over your eyes. They're just trying to trick you into thinking we're more legit than the mainstream because we attack the mainstream. I think they're more honest. I think maybe you can say because they say these sort of controversial things, they appear more honest, more likely to tell the truth because they say things that you shouldn't. Contrarian, like you said yeah, earlier, like yeah. like a Katie Hopkins type. Either believe what she says or just ignore it. She's yeah. not that. The more you uh, pay attention to her, the more powerful she becomes. <laughs> Now, obviously, everyone makes mistakes. Mainstream media, alternative media, the vloggers, the citizen journalists, they all make fuck-ups, right? And I think the number one reason for common mistakes is the idea that I've got to get out there first, is I've got to be the one that breaks this and set the narrative first, immediate reporting. It's like, no, good journalism takes a certain amount of time. You've got to let the facts and the investigations go on. Do you think social media has uh, skewed our expectations of just how quickly information should come out? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, Grenfell's a great example, isn't it? It's like they'll never be able to ac- accurately say how many people were in there. It would take months. And they'll never be able to accurately, accurately Oh, are you tell. saying about like subletting and S- things like that as well? Subletting. There'll be a little asterisk next to the number. Yeah. But some people will, like I say, will paint that as the reality it is and might say the uncomfortable truth of why it is that half the people in the building are doing something illegal okay but you know controversial yeah but then the other half will say it's a conspiracy they're covering it up because they don't want to tell us how many people were there with like the new judge they've they've put on it yeah and like um you know there's even questions over the the gender and race and sexuality of the the judge who's going to leave inquiries shoe size favorite football team yeah they're alleging he's too rich to be trusted basically we're getting like america it's ridiculous we're massively polarized Maybe that's what media outlets have to do, is when they do make a mistake, the retraction has to be the front page main headline. Yeah, but most of the time these retractions are about some prostitute, some footballer shagged. You know, they don't want to, like, just have that. It's not going to be interesting. Normally it's something innocuous, like, um, we said this person invented this in 1975, it was actually 1973. Yeah. Small areas like that. But I think the public have to be a little bit more understanding that even major news networks and small networks alike make mistakes. And a big reason why they make so many mistakes, why they make mistakes is because they're trying to get it out there quick, trying to be the first ones to break the news. Yeah. To be honest with you, thinking about it though, I think it's just the whole sort of televised news, even mass media in general. I'm thinking about it. I think it's just come to its maturation now. It's coming to its old age. It's it's, it's going to die off and go go the way of history. It's irrelevant. It's not. It's it's not irrelevant because it was actually a social yoke. You know what I mean? And now I think we're in this new age where not only everyone everyone can be a reporter, everyone can be a journalist, everyone's got a video camera and recording device in their hands and an ability to, to connect to the rest of the world. But they don't know what they're doing, though. We still don't. It's, we're st- we're, it's still early days. But like I say, things are going to go the way of Infowars and it's, it's going to be, in the end of the day, it's not, it, what's, how, what's going to happen in our, the way our world's going? It's not going to be the most factual news that matters. It'll be the most entertaining. <laughs> and that's why oh you've got God, people, like, be, um, people like Alex Jones rising to the that top. That worries me. Because I watch him and I laugh. He makes me laugh. But you know he's he has influence, right? He there influences are some me. I think he's fantastic. 
But there are going to be some things you listen to him, listen to him say and go, yeah, obviously, Alex, that's that's bullshit, Alex. No, because he hasn't. He's never even talked about stuff I believe in. He he hasn't even gone as far as talking about aliens and stuff. I remember someone on YouTube. They listened to four hours of Alex Jones. They took a random forty-five minutes from that four hours and uploaded it to YouTube, like completely unedited, so everything was left in its original context. Yeah. Going into an ad break, Alex Jones goes, "Coming up, folks, after the break." We have the documents proving the globalists are planning World War Three in six months' time. More on that after the break. And then he comes back from the break, doesn't mention it again. <laughs> Never mentioned it again. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He moved on. I think he moved he on probably, to like um, tadpoles being turned gay or something. Which has been proved true. <laughs> and um, But he probably said that the thing. Benjamin. But he's probably said it already six years ago. His brain's all over the place. Question, Tim. What can the media do more to regain the public's trust be more like the public it has to be more local it has to be more local it has to be more immediate and no direct. less immediate no you're talking about researching things for two weeks by yeah. the time you've researched it all the story's gone like we need live news we need like cameras on everybody's head that everyone can tap into just to see the news on anybody's street corner at any time i would not want to live in that world but take private eye yeah. Bi-weekly. Comes out every two weeks. Satirical. I quite like that, though. But they do do actual journalism. Oh, and good journalism. And it's more local, and they give time for the facts to really come out. Doing investigations, thorough investigation, takes days, weeks, months, not minutes. So let's stop trying to get our news from Twitter just because, oh, well, it, it breaks on Twitter first, doesn't it? They stop doing that. They stop losing our shit and doing the old two-minute rage thing just because a white woman like, was a racist on a bus. <laughs> I think news needs to get a bit more democratised. It just needs to get more people involved. Power of citizen journalism. I don't think they'll Such go... as this. <laughs> I call this ill-informed insight. This is more like shitizen journalism. <laughs> I'm genuinely concerned for anyone who uses us as a news source. I just want thought-provoking. Like That's all I want. I don't want people to take what we say as gospel. But just to go, oh, mm, that's interesting. I'll think about that. Just, like, yeah, I don't agree. Tim's probably right, actually. Sorry. <laughs> I don't agree, but nah, think about it. Do you know what I mean? That's all I want. We move now from fake news onto what could possibly be a new fake sexuality based around internet porn. Hey, what's up, Facebook family? How you doing? It's me, Terry Crews, again. I just want to address some things real quick, man. Um, the subject is Dirty Little Secret. And for years, 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 my dirty little secret was that I was addicted to pornography for years. And I, it's kind of crazy because this thing has become a problem. I think it's a, uh, you know, a worldwide problem. But pornography, you know, the thing is, it, it became a thing where I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody. It was a thing that, it was my secret, nobody knew. And that allowed it to grow. And it got bad. And when I say bad, so, some people deny it. They say, hey man, you know, you can't really be addicted to pornography. There's no way. But I'm gonna tell you something. If day turns into night, and you are still watching, you probably got a problem. And that was me. Um, it affected everything. I didn't tell my wife, didn't tell my friends, nobody knew. But the internet allowed that little secret to just keep stay and grow. 
So uh, the voice of Terry Crews, the former American football player, now uh, the guy from the Old Spice adverts. That's uh, yeah, I think that's what he's most famous for, isn't it? And the Expendables, but will now forever be known as a world class masturbator. But he said it was a a worldwide problem. Well, no one can argue with the statistics that the porn makes up a huge percentage of of the internet traffic, doesn't it? I think it's like over eighty percent. The largest, yeah, the largest. Well, now it seems we might perhaps have an entirely new sexuality based around internet porn. Another new sexuality? Pornosexual. To give it a swift and succinct definition, I think it would be somebody, an individual, who can only be aroused by internet pornography. Pornosexual is like you say it's a new sexuality. So could you get some people who would identify as pornosexuals and say, yeah, I'm a pornosexual. Terry Crews isn't a pornosexual, though. No, he is a porn addict, but I think there is um, an inextricable link between the two. I think internet porn addiction would come first. To answer your question, yeah, there was a guy, uh, I think this was uncovered earlier in June, by a guy who uh, posted on something called like Thought Blog or something like that. And he ousted himself as a pornosexual. And I think his blog post was titled, Why I Prefer Porn to Actual Sex. How can you say that? I'm so I mean, but that's like... Had the, this man actually ever had real sex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a weird and wacky world out there. But I just want to obviously get it clear. You're not a pornosexual just because you've masturbated to internet porn before. We're all safe on that front. So what do you think, Tim, the perceived benefits of being a pornosexual would be? Probably cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> you don't what? have to wine and dine, song and dance, movies and dinner. Netflix and chill. None of that. You don't have to make a fucking effort. You don't have to be in love. Don't have to work on your game. You don't have to do anything. I suppose one good thing is that it's all hidden. Like Terry Crews was saying with his porn addiction, nobody had to know about it. He could keep it from everyone. And being a pornosexual, you wouldn't necessarily have to let anybody know. But uh, to answer your question earlier about um, how I stumbled across this, how this became known earlier in June, a guy called Marcus Jackson, he made this blog post and uh, saying, oh yeah, I prefer watching internet porn to having actual real-life sex. And he said one of the supposed benefits is that porn can be specifically tailored to your every desire, your every whim, whatever it happens to be in that moment. He put it like this. Imagine your perfect sexual partner. Imagine that everything about them is specifically catered to your specific taste. Their face, eyes, body, hair, demeanor, everything is exactly how you like it. It's a bit self-centered, perhaps. Yeah, so it's like all those... That's the thing, like like you say, this is, he has a point there, though. You know, um, in a way, he's denying himself a lot of spontaneity. And What's more spontaneous than internet pornography? Reality. <laughs> reality is a bit more mundane, wouldn't like you say, Like you say, he, 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 he can choose. He likes it because he can choose a woman who's like five foot A, black hair. It's a versatility. Yeah. Like, today I'm in the mood for the X. Tomorrow I'm in the mood for Y. Mm-hmm. And internet porn caters to that, always. Yeah. But you say it's victimless, but I'd imagine Terry Crews' wife, she might have been affected by it if he couldn't perform in the bedroom because he was, like, spent already. Well, he was talking about, I'm sitting there all day watching it, so I imagine it would uh, be, hey, honey, you coming out to this thing that we were supposed to go to? No. Yeah. No. I'm busy. I'm busy. <laughs> Leave me alone, woman. I suppose one benefit would be you can satisfy almost every sexual fantasy you've ever had, no matter how lurid how taboo, how afraid you would be to let anyone else know that this is the kind of thing you're into. It's entirely insular. Nobody else has to know about it. Because everyone's got their own tastes, right? Everybody's got what they like. Hmm. And when, you're, like, when you've got your sexual partner there, 
perhaps they're not into the same things you're into. Mm. Maybe they're not willing to do certain things that you want them to do. Mm-hmm. With porno sexuality, that's not a concern. So are porno sexuals, are they just self-serving narcissists then? Narcissist is... I don't think they're in it for them, themselves. I don't think they do it because they think they're great. It's just sense, it's sense gratification, but it's, it's, it's a very easy way of, of going about it. Is it a lack of consideration for others? No. Maybe, maybe I should care about what they want too. Maybe they haven't got anyone else though. Well, this guy Marcus Jackson was saying, no, he's had girlfriends. He still occasionally dates. Mm. He doesn't miss sexual intercourse in any way. Feels like he's better off without it. As I was trying to do like research for this, I stumbled across a couple who claimed to be pornosexuals, both of them. And so they would basically, what that means is in real terms, they would prefer to go off on their own and watch pornography by themselves mm. than have sex with each other. Right. I mean, maybe I'm being a little bit too reductionist here, right? But when it comes to orgasms, aren't they really just like little more than stress relief? Like a release of pent up sexual tension that you often feel you just want to get rid of some, you know, like, I just need to get rid of this so I can get on with other stuff. Well, right in a lot of, that's the very sort of modern Western view of it. it you know, in some in some cultures and traditions, you know, orgasm was like a, one of the, the, the spiritual, spiritual highs. Yeah. You know, in French, the French word for orgasm, they call it petit mort, the little death. Because when you have an orgasm, it's like time. Looking like you're dying. Time, well, like? time stops. <laughs> your life flashes before it, it doesn't for me life. for me at least it does you know <laughs> but it's it's it, it can be a very powerful sacred thing especially if it's in in terms of conception you bring up spirituality of yeah in sexual intercourse yes. i think in the west we've kind of tossed aside forgive the pun of like uh, any sort of spiritual religious context when it comes to sex mm-hmm. like um, i think we've tried to completely sever the connection between sexual intercourse and procreation yeah. Like, the two are completely separate. Like, if there were a Venn diagram of the two, it's, there'd be no overlap. It's such a complicated subject, though, because you've got the whole concepts of, like, giving pleasure, taking pleasure from other people's pleasure. But, like, porn itself, I, I find quite quite depressing. Like, obviously, we, we talked about when we... You, Shame-inducing, perhaps? Well, it's like, it's, it's hard to be, like... In some senses, it can give you unrealistic expectations, to go back, the aforementioned Marcus Jackson. Now, he noted in his blog post like, that people would dismiss him as just somebody who was unlucky in love. Maybe he's just a virgin or what have you. But no, he, his contention is it's more to do with him having the time to really devote himself to somebody else. And also an expectation that other people don't really have the time to devote themselves to him. And uh, he notes that when it comes to modern day dating ritual, everyone gets bored much quicker than they used to. Do you agree with that? I could say people have different expectations of dates now. The whole dating scene has changed. It's a lot more acceptable to sleep with someone on the first date now than it used to be. Yeah, I I think cut the bullshit. That's the sign of the times now. Because I mean, Tinder, it's, um, Tinder, isn't it? You know, swipe left, swipe right. It's not even like you're like, just judging their face. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it is: uh, are they hot? Are they not? And that's it. That's what it's all. Which is interesting. This guy's chosen to become a pornosexual because it's easy to get sex, right? If you want it, that's what that's what I'm thinking. Because my first instinct was like, yeah, do you know what? He's just a virgin who's like. Uh, mm. He's got issues with intimacy mm. or what have you. Blah, Maybe blah, if you're blah, like blah. one of these sort of like germ freaks. But I think it's more just he thinks the old dating game. It's just too much of a hassle. Maybe he's tight. He's too time-consuming, takes up too much of your money. Uh, You've got the stress levels going up, especially in the early days of a relationship, but you're not quite sure how they feel. You kind of know how you feel about them, but you don't know how they feel about you, and you're insecure about it. He's probably a bit emotionally repressed. He's probably scared of hurting someone. Of course, you've got, in the olden days, it was like you you were trying to find your lifelong partner. 
Because that sort of died off now. And it's more just about, hey, listen, you know, I'm with you right now, but there's other people out there. Yeah, I think... There's more of you. I think deep down, everyone likes the idea of a lifelong partner. I think we're monogamous. I think we work better as monogamous creatures, at least. We have more peaceful lives. I don't think it's our nature to be monogamous. I think that was learned behaviour over a long period of time. Yeah. To try and... um, Civilise. It's civilising. To try and eliminate jealousy. Have you heard the phrase before, the seven-year itch? Yes. Typically, the seven-year itch refers to the idea that um, that's the average length of a, quote, long-term relationship. It's seven years, and then you start getting bored of each other, and you start wondering, what would it be like to date someone else? Apparently, in under 10 years, the average length of what is considered a long-term relationship has shrunk from the seven-year itch down to only two years. That's quite a drop over a relatively short period of time. So something about the nature of dating and relationships has changed, I would would say that suggests. Now, typically in both online and print media, the fact that the average length of the long-term relationship has shrunk so much is typically put down to social media, dreaded social media, and people's attention spans are too short now. I guess I don't really think... That's the real issue here. I think it's more the fact that the culture of dating, what in Britain we used to call courting, it has completely changed. Well, the whole concept of families changed now and what makes a family and values. And... Yeah, but I think people's desire to start families is still there. Of course. I think they're just a little bit more, I don't want to settle for just anybody. I want to be in the right spot before I start having children. I want to have like the perfect Career. path yeah. towards having a family. Which obviously is not attainable for all of us. But I'd also say, um, in during World War Two, obviously American GIs were coming over into Britain and they were having like they pretty much introduced the concept of the one night stand to British women. It didn't really exist prior to that as like a cultural phenomenon. And then fast forward to the sixties and you've got this explosion mm. called the sexual revu- revolution. We had the pill, free love. You could have sex without consequences. Call it female emancipation. It's kind of a little bit of an emancipation for men as well. There were benefits, basically, for men. It's basically a lot easier to get sex. Women were a lot looser, basically. Yeah. What What the uh, long-term effect of the massive release of extra amounts of estrogen into the water supply will have on civilization? <laughs> yet to be determined. But post-sexual revolution, like you alluded to uh, earlier, it's now more likely that you're going to get some action on the first date. Whereas prior to World War II, the British courting ritual used to be you would go out on several dates over a period of several weeks, if not months, where you would both try and ascertain what kind of people you are, what your chemistry is like, what your compatibility is like, and whether or not you're a person of good moral standing, if you have a future career prospect or what have you. Whereas now we do things the American way, what I consider to be the American way, where you have sex first and then you decide whether or not you like each other later on. Try before you buy. (laughs) Yeah, but it's not. It's the reverse. It's like you're just, to use a cliche phrase, you're just giving in to the sexual urge, first and foremost, getting that out of the way, getting that orgasm out of the way, and then you're starting to understand what this who, what this other human being is, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Now, whenever I bring up the British way of doing dating pre-World War II, like when I bring it up to women and explain what it is, or mansplain what it is, if you will, <laughs> they tend to like the idea of it. You know, they'll sit there and think about it for a few seconds and be like, yeah, do you know what, that, was, you know, that, might, that might be a better way of doing it mm-hmm. than the current 21st century way of doing it. So do you think it's mostly peer pressure? It's people just act that way because they think that's how everyone acts? I think that's the rationalisation for it. 
However, I think it's just, we embraced hedonistic, nihilistic. I just want to self-indulge. I just want me, 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 now, now, now. Mm-hmm. But it's just because we've we've it's because we've created that world now. We've we've facilitated that world for ourselves now, so we can, uh, like I say, with the internet now, you can just pick and choose anyone who's desperate. And you know, if if one fails, you can have an, another date with someone else the next night. Yeah, that's what I think. It's kind of um, it's kind of like a bit like Marvel movies. You know how you're always anticipating the next one to come along. You're not really focusing 100 percent on the current uh, movie you're watching. It's, it's a shame, really, isn't it? You're but, thinking about your next sexual partner. Yeah. Yeah, if this one doesn't work out, I can get someone else very easily. What I would say that means then is relationships aren't necessarily 100% all about sex, but that's where it starts. That's where the initial focus and pressure, that's what it's all on. Is It's got to be good sex from the beginning. Otherwise, I don't really give a shit. Well, you have to be sexually attracted to the person. Yeah, of course, that's a given. But once you've uh, got that out of the way, yes. once you've ascertained whether or not they're a good shag, if you come to the conclusion they're not a good shag, so you're not going to stick around for long. You're not going to wait and see what kind of person they are, whether or not you enjoy spending time together. Do you know what I mean? You're just going to yeah. go, oh, that was a crap shag. I'm going to go move on to the next but person. It's, but it's important, though, because there could be someone who is sexually very attractive, like visually, and then when you finally get to bed, they're, they're rubbish. Maybe that's one silver lining to the Tinder dating culture now. What's that? Where you just, at least you're getting through a higher number of potential suitors faster. Yeah. Maybe. But what the, 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 it's the, I guess it's that quantity versus quality argument. It's interesting because in, in a way there's, say that there's, wouldn't, there's been someone I've, I've got with, but if there's been like months of like prelude and hints. Teasing. Teasing. That slow build up when, when it finally happens, then that is like a thousand times more exciting some orgasms are better than others then then just like doing all in the space of a day in the end of the day i think the old sayings the old rules stand true we're in we're we're in a new arena it's a new arena but the old we're about to be the old rules still apply we're about to be in a new arena sex robots are coming they are imminent they're here I think there's going to come a time where more than 50% of households have a sex robot, at least one sex robot in it. Incredible. What a game changer that might be. I know a lot of, um, not a lot, but some women are scared. They think like, oh, wh- why, why would men be attracted to me if they've got a robot they can do whatever they want with? My fear is they'll make them look like specific, like real human beings. Celebrities and such. Well, I mean, you might get licensed You wouldn't one. get away with you. Yeah, you could do that. You wouldn't get away with um, <laughs> just obviously making it look exactly like a really famous person. More the men who design them are going to have ideas, like they're going to have fantasies about someone they know. Yeah. And they're going to make her the robot version of her, in which case she's owed royalties. <laughs> at least, at least 9%, I would say, on Maybe. every unit sold. Feminists are worried that sex robots will uh, make men objectify women even more. Not possible. We couldn't, we couldn't objectify women any more than we already do. So uh, don't worry about that. You know, we, we try and make our sports cars and jets look like women. That's, that's how deep, deep it runs. So what is a porno sexual really? Is it a real new sexuality or is it just a, a mask for feelings of inadequacy and fear of intimacy? No, I, I, think, I think it can be fairly categorised as as a new sexuality if someone like this marcus bloke actually is prepared to stand up and self-define themselves as yeah, porn sexual, they, yeah fine 
um, like I said, if someone else is relying on, is using porn as a crutch or a drug, mm, abuse, um, then that's something else. That's a, that's, that's a porn addict when, yeah. when it's causing them problems and they're not happy about it. Mm. Although maybe you could be a pornosexual and not be happy about it as well. <laughs> I wish I wasn't a pornosexual. Why do you make me this way, God? <laughs> it may, pornosexuality may be possibly like a cerebral, a subconscious rejection of the current dating culture. We're saying we don't like this, but we don't have the guts to really just come out and say, look, I don't know. I, I want to change the way we do dating. I don't want it to be Tinderized anymore. Speaking of being sexually awkward, Tom Holland and friends star in the latest Marvel offering. It's Spider-Man Homecoming. It was a little sexually awkward with the... Um, oh, very sexually awkward, like all the love interests. 14, 15-year-olds are. What's up, guys? So, to become an Avenger, are there, like, trials or an interview? Do me a favor. Can't you just be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man? Just stay close to the ground. You're the Spider-Man from YouTube. Can you summon an army of spiders? No, Ned, no. Do you know him, too? I stole his shield. Can I try the suit on? Badass. So directed by John Watts, who I think he produced something called Cop Car, which apparently was a similar kind of film to this in terms of tone, like young people taking on adults. Starring Tom Holland, British actor, as Spider-Man, a.k.a. Peter Parker. And, of course, Robert Downey Jr. reprises his role as Tony Stark slash Iron Man. And Michael Keaton as the Vulture. Although I don't think he's ever actually... I think you're right, I don't think he's named I as the Vulture. I never reference him as the Vulture. And Marisa Tomei! She's still got it. Gorgeous. Pretty sure she's in her 50s. And she's no. still No. I'm sure she's close to 50. Following his triumphant debut on the superhero scene in Captain America's Civil War... Peter Parker longs to be back with his idols in the Avengers. Whilst waiting to get the call up to the big leagues, he's filling his time by tackling petty thugs. And Meanwhile, Michael Keaton has had his scrap-collecting business put in jeopardy when the government decides to usurp his contract with the New York City Council. I guess you'd call him a council. He was contracted to clear up the mess left by the alien invasion in the first Avengers movie, forcing him to take matters into his own hands in order to provide for his family and become the winged supervillain called The Vulture. Tim, what did we think? What did we think? I, I thought... What did you think? I thought, I thought it was fantastic. It was absolutely enjoyable film you could you could take it out of the marvel cinematic universe uh, as if it was just its own separate spider-man movie it'd be a really great fun little film um it's taken him back to when he was a teenager so it feels more like a teen movie and because mm. of that it has a real freshness and vitality that i found really enjoyable considering there's been three major like triple a big hollywood studio produced spider-man movies in the last what 15 16 years there's been, there's been, this will be the sixth one since 2000. Yeah. Tom Holland in this is probably the best actor to be cast thus far to play Spider-Man. Like you say, he's like, he is actually a teenager. Was I felt like, uh, what's his name? Who was the first one? Uh, Tobey Maguire. He was too old. Yeah. He was too old to be playing a teenager, like a high school student. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas this Tom Holland looks exactly the part, plays the part really well. And I agree with you when you were saying, like, in terms of tone, there's a very youthful, fun-loving tone to the film, more so than any other, like, preceding Spider-Man movie. What I liked about it, though, was the fact, it, for me, it was a metaphorical homecoming 
as, as well as just the film being called Homecoming because it was about Homecoming dance. It was the rights of Spider-Man. Sony had been forced to sell half of them back to Marvel. So it was great to have Spider- It was a co-production. I think Sony still yeah. own... Yeah, but it was great to have the creative force behind that Marvel Studios. Honestly, to me, it oh felt it God. felt like the right Spider-Man, more so even than Sam Raimi's one. It felt more like the... the yeah, the, the Andrew the Garfield, true. the last... I didn't even watch the last one, but all yeah, I heard about good. it was absolutely good. awful. Yeah. With Tom Holland's Spider-Man, in a way that didn't come across with uh, Tobey Maguire's or Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man, he's got enough of a range as an actor to come across as completely vulnerable. Even though he's got superpowers, he's got super strength, he's super agile, he's still vulnerable. He's still a kid. Yeah, and he, like, he, he makes so many mistakes and... Yeah, like schoolboy errors. Yeah, and you get, there's a bit where he's about to like jump on on some bad guys, and you can actually see him thinking like, "How am I going to do this? Am I going to be scary? Or am I going to be funny?" You know. Uh, oh, his like how he's going to uh, just even how he's standing intimidate there, intimidate them. He's like trying a few poses out before they turn <laughs> around. Yeah, it's definitely a highly entertaining comic book movie, and I say that as someone who's you know you've heard me on this podcast before saying I'm getting a little bit bored of formulaic comic book movies but i agree with you it's um i think the better marvel movies are the ones that are standalone like this one like captain america 3 civil war yeah just just the level it was at it was a it was at high school it was street level here heroics it was like upper mid level villain that well, spider-man like, was like tackling as yeah. his first kind of one-on-one yeah in, you know but but i found him i found the villain very sympathetic michael keaton is what he does is he takes the alien scrap he's already acquired and builds these mechanized wings out of it. I thought actually, I thought his um, on-screen representation, I don't know the comic book vulture, but I thought it was pretty good. I thought, you know, I found it quite enticing. Oh yeah. It was, it was certainly more believable than the comic book one. The comic book is like, is it like actual feathers? Feathers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's bullshit. But the, uh, this was like some sort of gyrocopter c- cyborg with thrusters. Yeah. Michael Keaton was fantastic. I really enjoyed him. He's always good though. That's the thing, Michael Keaton, you either like him or you don't. He's a little bit like uh, Robert Downey Jr. But I found um, director John Watts, he avoided the usual Spider-Man tropes. Normally, when you think Spider-Man in terms of like sub-themes, you think of the famous phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. That was actually, for the most part, circumvented. He sidestepped it. And it was just more focusing on what would it be like being 15 years old and having superpowers and a billionaire just gave you an amazing yeah. semi-robotic suit. And of course, the other thing I, I, I was so happy for, we didn't have to sit through another origin, which I thought was great. We didn't have to watch... Yeah, we all know it. We didn't have to watch him getting bit by a spider. Conversely as well, um, maybe a little bit spoiler territory here, but right at the very, very, very beginning of the film, we see the establishment of the villain. Mm. He was created very abruptly. It's Michael Keaton. I th- I'm guessing he runs some sort of scrapyard, some yeah. scrap collection company. Yeah. And he's got the the city contract to clean up Manhattan after the massive alien invasion. So he must he's sitting on a gold mine basically. Yeah. And then the government, the federal government, comes in under some Tony Stark initiative, and they take the contract out from under him. So you were saying earlier, um, he's a sympathetic character. I agree. I thought so. Yeah, he's a guy who got screwed. Yeah, and he's he, a little man getting screwed by the big government. Yeah. And he would have got away with it if Spider Man, that middling kid, if it wasn't for Spider Man. The rich and the powerful, like Stark, they don't care about us. The world's changing, boys. Time we change, too. These weapons are crazy dangerous. Listen, Peter, forget the flying monster guy. There are people who handle this sort of thing. Illegal weapons barrier was at 2.30. You missed it. 
somebody had died. I was just trying to be like you. I wanted you to be better. I'm gonna need the suit back. But I'm nothing without this suit. If you're nothing without this suit, then you shouldn't have it. I screwed up. You need to stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. I want you to understand. I'll do anything to protect my family. He gives he, he there's one point where Spider-Man's going to stop him and he, he actually stops and says to Spider-Man, you know, listen, you're you're wrong. I'm doing this to protect my family. I'm only a little guy and Tony Stark made his money from selling weapons. Why am I any different? You know, introduce because for a teenager, that moral quandary, yeah. that kind of gray area doesn't exist. And he, Michael Keaton introduced him to that. Like, yeah, hey, yeah. listen, not everything's black and white. Because yeah. Spider-Man was very innocent. He was very innocent, like all young people Very are. endearing. It was fun watching a teenage boy who's got a superpower figuring out what's the best way to go about. He's learning how to be a superhero, yeah. basically. That's what the film is. You're watching him learn how to be a superhero. And it was good that it was done from a very, like you say, juvenile perspective. And I like the fact, I wouldn't call it a coming of age movie. He didn't really grow up. He didn't transition from boy to man. And basically, did you notice there's there's three Spider-Man suits in the film? And I think that was like a symbolic gesture. The first suit is his old crappy suit he made himself, you know, of like the binocular mm. kind of goggle eye things. The first suit represents the birth of Spider-Man. The second suit is the one Tony Stark gives him. In Civil War, yeah. And we find out in this movie that Tony Stark has programmed the suit. Peter Parker, Tom Holland, he can only use certain features of it. Other ones have been locked out from him because he's not ready yet. And mm-hmm. it's called like the Training Wills program. There's yeah. a reference to he's, a, he's still a kid, right? That's what the second suit represents. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man growing up. And then right at the end, Tony offers a third suit, which to me symbolized you are now, this is Spider-Man going into adulthood. Yeah. This final suit is he's finally grown up. And of course, at the end of the film, spoilers, he rejects Tony's offer. He says, no, thanks. I'm not ready to be an adult. I'm still growing up. That's why I would say it's not a coming of age movie, Mm. which I I like that fact. It was um, John Watts, the director, did well to avoid that cliche. Yeah. Yeah. But it it built a really nice little world for itself as well you know it's, it's got its own self-contained universe and like i say because it was such a young cast it, it felt like a teen movie it was really enjoyable overtones of ferris bueller's day off a lot of the film is uh, tom holland being truant from school mm. the action sequences i would say were pretty yeah top notch yeah i haven't got a lot to criticize when i try and rem- think back about things to criticize i'll just instead remember something that was quite funny there are so many small funny bits like i'd love to give a shout out to one of the supporting members of the cast zendania zendania who the plays sarcastic girl yeah the, she plays a girl called michelle she's a very sarcastic dry but yeah i thought it was such a funny dismissive character and insulting do you know what i mean very she was funny. Um, very funny tarantino-esque yeah, you know I mean? uh, it was it was really really well well cast. I didn't like the love interest. Who I thought was the letdown in terms of performance, but yeah. admittedly, the love interest in this film that subplot was pretty much it was largely irrelevant. It was mostly uh, I don't want to give too much away, but it was mostly an excuse to have the scene where Tom Holland and Michael Keaton are sat down yeah. together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, but it was sort of tacked on. Like by the end, the 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 love interest was abruptly concluded with i'm going to the other side of the country now i will miss you i will miss you too bye bye much like deadpool the movie benefited from not trying to pack in too much epic city destruction action scenes do you know what i mean it, it like deadpool it kept things small and simple for the most part what do you like how did you feel in terms of like the drama the tension were you emotionally committed and caring about what was happening on screen uh, I was able to feel a lot 
Tom Holland makes Peter Parker very relatable to anyone who's been a teenager, and um, so so it's, so it's very easy to to be invested in in his story and what's what's happening to him. But like you say, there aren't any sort of city destroying, world ending, apocalyptic things that he has to deal with yeah. no what's, world ending events so. what's at stake for the most part is will tony stark let him be an avenger but i liked it i like that the plot the main plot being yeah. this overzealous teenager who's trying too hard to impress daddy the father-like figure in his life which is robert yeah. downey jr tony stark yeah and um i thought it worked you are a martial artist mm-hmm. i'm not but we do both love hong kong martial arts movies right? yeah we love a good fight scene. Yeah. There wasn't a hell of a lot of hand-to-hand combat in no. the fight sequences. He uses a lot of web swinging. Yes. Uh, trick webs, grenade webs, sticky yeah, webs. Yeah, that's going to be everyone's new favorite phrase. Web grenade! But how are you, what did you think of the action, the fight scenes? Yeah, pretty good. As but, a martial artist. But like I say, it's, it's very hard to see, even in like superhero films, like what, like I see you talk about the Hong Kong action fight scenes, they're always amazing to watch. Because they perfected the art. Yeah, because they're real actual humans doing it. Whereas in a lot of these fights, you'll see like, hand. yeah, but like I saw in Civil War, like um, Black Panther, that was, that was Black decent. Panther pulls off like a, a triple kick, a triple, triple kick, kick in the air. Yeah, and that it's, was the worst bit. But. It's obviously CG and it's like, you know, so that sort of thing takes me oh, out. I thought it was wires, but it's, it, it, was, um, it was wires actually. But. It cuts about six times, completely unnecessary. Whereas I felt the direction and the editing, this was quite good. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was great. No shaky cam. Mostly, apart from the last action sequence, it was a little bit difficult to yeah, follow. Yeah, all the other ones though. Yeah, it was well done. Yeah, and it was nice and bright, crisp primary colours on the daytime scenes. That's one thing I'm. Um, I personally, I'm not a hundred percent on board with Iron Man as a character. Right, I I don't like the cop out that Iron Man can invent something for every single conceivable scenario like there's even a bit in spider-man homecoming yeah but yeah it's like that you know that aspect and then in this movie they make spider-man like that his suit can do anything he's got a parachute in the back that's cool he's got a robot drone on the front that can come off his chest and fly and do like reconnaissance for him he's got web grenades (laughs) web machine gun it gets very high tech taser webbing it's even got it's even got elevator brake sensors that can tell how an elevator's brakes are doing. I know you know what I'm talking about. So don't mess with me. Because I will kill you and everybody you love. My friends are up there! That guy is still out there. I've just got to do this on my own. Just... Don't do anything stupid. All right? Yeah. I can't think of many negative things to say about it. Now, obviously... We'd be nitpicking if we... Yeah. Um, my, now, obviously, my favourite Spider-Man film of all time will be the 1978 one. Oh, fuck off. Um, Spider-Man Strikes Back. It's Hip, hipster wannabe, where it's a rope. I the wore, web is a, I, yeah, like just a yeah. plain old rope. I wore out the VHS of that as a child. But out of the, the six modern ones, I'd probably put this a joint first with Spider-Man 2. The pacing on it is consistent. You do care. Tom Holland is a very endearing actor. You do give a shit about him. I, I, I kind of have a natural aversion to teenage actors. Yeah, me too. They're, they they tend to be a bit annoying and self conscious and self aware, but and he does a good. He's a British actor. He does a very convincing yeah. American accent. I find. Yeah, yeah. This uh, Spider Man Homecoming. I would highly recommend this film to all ages. 
it has a little bit of the Marvel movie formula where every second scene ends with like a sarcastic quip and it sort of takes whatever tension was built and that scene is sort of dissipated. Mm. But it's a very refreshing film in the sense John Watts was smart enough or creative enough to just keep it youthful and fun and how like a teenager would be. Yeah. It has a teenagery feel to it, like you say. Yeah. A lightness. Would you recommend it, Tim? I'd, I'd heartily recommend it to uh to anyone whether you're a spider fan or not if you're a spider-man fan you'll love it it'll, it'll feel like um what you've waited for yeah for, for a lot for since 1978 <laughs> <laughs> all right ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening to the tom dick and hyman show if you enjoyed what you heard be sure to subscribe to us on itunes and leave us a positive review five stars if you'd please please if you don't have itunes installed why not follow us on soundcloud which apparently i'm hearing are due to go bankrupt so we might have to move house soon if you can't be asked <laughs> to follow us on soundcloud maybe you could be asked to follow us on twitter at tdh show or maybe even like our Facebook page. Everyone's on Facebook. And that way you can keep up to date with our latest releases and our special unique brand of ill-informed insight. Yeah. Don't watch CNN. Don't be a pornosexual. Do watch Spider-Man. And do watch Spider-Man. <laughs> but for now, it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from Tim. Goodbye, buddy. Till next time. Till next time.